Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're never going to reach kind of happy land. It doesn't exist. We might reach it for a short time and visit it, but we're never going to exist in happy land for the rest of our lives. So it's about kind of recognizing that there will be those ups and downs which is quite different to the kind of societal story we have about striving and success. It's all about reaching for something and reaching for this kind of place you will get to where everything will be okay, which isn't possible. We will be okay many times, but we'll also feel bad and we'll feel sad and we'll feel anxious, but then we'll be okay again. Hi, I'm Francesca Spector. And you're listening to Alonement, the podcast that broadens the conversation around alone time. Each episode, I ask my guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. At the heart of every episode is one central question. What turns solitude into a good or bad experience? Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's Alonement. So we're finally here. It is season three finale time. And before I start the episode, I just wanted to remind you that I have written a book. Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It is available in hardback, Kindle and audiobook editions. If you would like a sneak preview before ordering yours, I've included an exclusive clip from the audiobook at the end of this episode. Now, time for the episode, and might I add what a banger to conclude with. My interviewee this week is Dr. Emma Hepburn, aka the Psychology Mum. I'm just going to come out and say it. Emma quickly became one of my all-time favourite interviewees within basically minutes of starting this recording. She's that magical combination of grounded, honest and astonishingly wise. One moment she's your relatable best friend, the next she's throwing out brilliant insightful nuggets of wisdom that make you pause for thoughts. For those who aren't already familiar with her work, Emma is an NHS clinical psychologist known for producing beautiful illustrations that demystify mental health concepts for the masses. Her Instagram page, The Psychology Mum, has over 100,000 followers and has proved a welcome balm for those struggling during lockdown. So pretty much all of us then. She's also the author of A Toolkit for Modern Life, which is out now in hardback. 
I couldn't think of a better way to end this season than speaking to Emma. And I know you're going to fall in love with her like I did. Happy listening. Dr. Emma Hepburn, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to congratulate you because you've just been awarded the Points of Light Award by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. What an honour. Yes, yes, that was uh, quite a surprise. Um, I have to admit, when they first called me, I thought it was some sort of scam call. But no, it turned out it wasn't. Um, They genuinely were from the Prime Minister's office and wanted to give me this award. So I then had a call with the Prime Minister just a couple of weeks ago. Um, a Zoom call as well, and um, with my children video bombed so they could tell their <laughs> friends the next day that the Prime Minister said hello to them, which he did. That is amazing. I love that. It's, it's the, I guess it's the reality of, um, of homeschooling, which I know you've been doing. You can't even, if you're quite literally on the phone to the Prime Minister, you can't get a moment's relief and peace. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I did get, they were kind of stands in the door. I did give them permission to come in, but I think they would have come in without permission anyway. So yes, and that's probably the, yeah, the, a good example of how homeschooling works. Your children are just there constantly demanding your attention. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, there's, there's something nice about it, I do think, because it's almost like those veneers have dropped off. We almost get that picture of someone's home life. Yeah, I like that. I like the fact that, you know, that we can see that you can't separate the person from the work. And I think for so long, we've tried to pretend we are this work person and we're this home person. And of course, in some situations, that's quite helpful having a kind of different mindset. But also, it's it's sometimes not that helpful because you can't really separate the fact you've got kids that you need to go and pick up when you're at work. And that creates stress if you're late. So I like I like the fact that's happened. Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, you can't necessarily separate that. But you very much, even in your Instagram handle, you very much acknowledge the fact that you are a mum. You are the mm-hmm. psychology mum. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Although I do try to keep, I don't show my children Instagram, so I do try and keep it very boundary in terms of professionalism. But when I was coming up with the name, and I think it was before I realised how popular it would become, I was like, well, what do I do? My two identities at the moment this was a few couple of years ago, or I'm a psychologist and a mum. So it was as basic as that. Put the two of them together. And that's my two identities. So yeah. That's interesting. So has it always been quite important to you to show that reality of your life, even if you don't explicitly show your children online? Yeah, I I think there, you know, this kind of view of an expert. So I know a lot about brains. I know a lot about mental health. Does that make me immune to how the brain works or to mental health? Of course it doesn't. You know, I still have a brain that functions like anybody else's brain. It still has the same bias and the same, you know, it's still drawn towards certain things. I think, you know, that separate or separation of the person from the professional identity has kind of traditionally been what's happened. But actually, I think recognising or showing that, you know, not in a very boundaried way that, that we all have these same experiences, it's kind of common humanity, that brains work as they do, 
kind of normalized that experience. And actually, even in my previous book, you know, I kind of slip in a couple of things about the reward areas of our brain and not being able to override it when I, for example, eat a multi-pack of crisps, because we're all prone to these things. You know, we all have mental health, we all have a brain, we all experience many of the same similarities across that. Of course, there's individual differences, but to pretend I don't would be unrealistic to put myself on this pedestal. It's like, I know everything about mental health and I know exactly how to apply it. Well, I do know a lot about mental health and I do know a lot about our brains, but applying it can still be hard at times because I still have the same fallacies that all humans have. I think this is a perfect point to ask a question, which I imagine you don't get asked all that often, which is, how are you? Because I know that you've been supporting you know I don't think it's even a stretch to say you've been supporting the nation you've been supporting your family you've been working as a clinical psychologist for the NHS throughout this pandemic how are you coping with all that yeah I would say today because the sun has come out I'm feeling quite good but January and February I was definitely experiencing lockdown exhaustion I think what had happened is that you know, I like going out for walks in the evening. We had a really grim February and January in Scotland. That wasn't possible. So a lot of my coping strategies were taken away. And then the multiple demands, so the children were at home, of homeschooling, trying to juggle a job or two jobs, because I also work at the university, um, trying to keep up with other demands which came in via the Instagram stuff. Just that kind of, I was overloaded with stuff or things to do. My brain was overloaded and, I, and you're pulled between all these different areas and that's exhausting for your brain multitasking at that level is exhausting I think you can feel like you're not succeeding in any of those and that's exhausting as well so yeah I'm feeling I'm feeling quite hopeful right now because the sun's out but had you asked me last week when it was torrential rain here you'd have got a very different story yes and that's that's very realistic I I know that in one of your brilliant illustrations you do a sort of graph of you know emotions and it, it really is you know it's a roller coaster as, mm-hmm. as you you know you, you you draw it like this swirly line rather than this you know straight constant that we think and it's and that's why I really like uh you know the title of your book a toolkit for modern life it's I, I suppose the idea of a toolkit presupposes that things break or go wonky and to have a toolkit almost I don't know it almost allows that reality yeah and I think it's also applying the right tool at the right time for you and what works for you might be slightly different so I think the idea is that things will go wrong in life and you're like things go wrong in your house things break in your house you have a toolkit for it it's inevitable that things will go wrong in your life and that you will sometimes feel bad that's life. We can't help feeling bad. We can't help feeling anxious at times. But it's about knowing what you can do about it and how you can help yourself. It's not trying to avoid feeling bad or trying to avoid feeling anxious all the time, which is actually unhelpful. It's trying to find the things that you can best do to help yourself when that happens. So I think that's how the toolkit analogy works. It's also about realistic expectations about how emotions work, expecting at times life will throw things at us and we will feel bad. Mm. And your your pandemic toolkit, you were saying that walks have been a really useful tool for you. Um, you know, do you think that that almost has been, yeah, much more of a challenge just because of something like the weather? Yeah, I mean, I think the first 
lockdown. Obviously, there's been different lockdowns and different or different numbers of lockdowns in different countries, and Scotland is slightly different to England. But in the first one, we were all in that lockdown. If you remember the beautiful weather of spring, March, it was stunning. We were sitting outside homeschooling. We were out on beautiful walks. The days were getting longer. And that enabled us to do things which helped us cope. In a winter lockdown, I mean, people feel quite often bad in the winter time anyway, or feel worse because they're not getting the same level of light, the same level of time outside. And But also what it did, like you mentioned, was take away a lot of those coping strategies you normally use. So, you know, you don't want to sit outside with a friend or walk outside with a friend if it's pelting down with rain or torrential snow. So it's just that kind of practicality of taking away those things that help us cope. And also, I think everybody was just absolutely exhausted. And I walk around the hospital, the staff look exhausted. Everybody was already exhausted. So we're coming from a different base where people are already having kind of difficult emotions. There's difficult emotions, obviously, with a pandemic, but that was with a kind of layer of exhaustion on top of it, which was kind of additional thing we had to get through and also kind of hope I think in the first wave or the first lockdown we had hope that wouldn't last long it was just kind of camaraderie that we were all in it together and I think holding on to hope during those winter months not knowing when it was going to end not knowing when it was going to be light again was really difficult and I think that's why the sunshine to me has just made me go okay, yes, we do get spring and nice weather in Scotland. I've started to feel quite hopeful about it again. But when your mood is already low, what we do is we predict the future based on that current mood. It's called effect anchoring. So we anchor our predictions about how we currently feel. And if we currently feel bad, it could be hard to see us feeling any other way in the future. So you really have to force your brain to kind of think, but last March was beautiful it was really nice and I did feel good, even though there was, you know, times I felt stressed last March, I did feel good. Um, in the sunshine, there was things I could do to make myself feel good. So it's remind yourself that those little pockets of hope and seeing the spring bulbs come up, whatever it is. It's not about trying to say I shouldn't feel that way. It's saying there is still hope here and I can hold on to that because I will feel a different way in the future. That's fascinating. Effect anchoring. And that's, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's based almost on, I suppose, an acquired wisdom because we have like, we have like, I suppose, you know, we always use the word unprecedented, but now we haven't, we have a precedented spring Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, which as you say, had moments of okayness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's helping your brain remember that. So when it's feeling bad or exhausted or exhausted, because our brains has, basically our brain is designed to process lots of complex information very, very quickly if we processed everything that was going on in the world, our brain would be constantly overloaded and wouldn't work. So it has lots of shortcuts. And one of those is what I described, kind of anchoring itself onto what's going on right now to predict the future. But also we have a real kind of threat negative bias. So we'll notice that. And it has a stronger impact on our brain than positive things. So sometimes you almost have to work against your own brain to kind of get yourself through these things and have an understanding about how that works, I think can be really helpful to say, okay, yes, I am noticing all these threats out there, but I know that's because my brain is picking up on that kind of negative bias and being threat orientated. Wow. I mean, my brain is absolutely fizzing (laughs) from everything you're saying already. I wonder, so this podcast is about being alone. You know, I, I wonder how much that state of aloneness comes into both identifying and 
also exercising that toolkit. And I know mm-hmm. it's different. I know everyone has a different toolkit, as you say in your book, we all have different tools, but like what relationship is there between creating our own toolkit and using it and spending time alone? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think aloneness, some choice, let's say, um, aloneness. So I'm going to focus on two things. So aloneness from choice and lack of social connection, which is a different thing. So aloneness from choice gives your brain a time to kind of downregulate and process things and think things through. It also uh, is almost about a time to make connections in your brain that you wouldn't have, which you wouldn't necessarily make when your brain is kind of action orientated. When you pause, parts of your brain link together. I come up with ideas in those times. So for me, it's alone time is definitely a part of my toolkit so it enables me just to kind of relax engage my rest and digest system in my body and gives me time to be creative and come up with ideas I love spending time alone but I guess there's other side where we know that social connection is one of this or is the strongest predictor of positive mental health so if you don't have the opportunity for social connection if it's not a choice to be alone if it's you don't have agency in deciding to be alone I guess then it can be a really negative thing because then that creates stress. So loneliness can create stress if it's not a choice. Being alone, not a choice as loneliness, which creates stress, which has an adverse effect on our mental health and well-being. Yeah, and I, I definitely, you know, I want to come on to loneliness a little bit later in this podcast because I think that, especially during this pandemic, it's been a whole other beast and something that's been almost you know central to everyone's experience of it in some way but um you know I I I wonder is there a world in which alone time could you know not feature in someone's toolkit is there do you think that someone can have a healthy emotionally regulated state of being without spending any time alone I think that's very individual, isn't it? I think um, some people thrive through social connection and don't need the same level of downtime. Um, I think it's very individual. I think most people do need some time alone or sometimes certainly to downregulate their brain. That might not necessarily be totally alone, but might be sitting with a person and not speaking. So I think time to downregulate your brain or time to daydream or time to potter, whether that's alone, and for many people it will be, or whether it's with somebody else but not having to actively think is really beneficial but I think it's very individual I think it's that kind of downtime that down regulation of the brain the the kind of relaxation of the brain some people might do it with somebody else but for me I like doing it alone yeah that's interesting so you can kind of be almost alone together with someone if you can achieve a a comfortable silence Mm -hmm. to read drawing or to create drawing but you'll be beside someone I guess I guess actually coming back to this, it's sometimes about flow and flow is thought to be when your attention is in the moment doing something and you're caught up in that and your brain isn't thinking about other things. Now, I guess that is possible for other people. You certainly get flow from doing certain things like exercise, but often flow does come from doing things by yourself like reading or um, just being really involved, gardening for some people, creative things for some people, exercise for some people. And often those things are when you're alone you might have people beside you but actually your focus is not on being distracted by other people your focus is on the thing you're doing and being totally into the thing you're doing and that state of flow is thought to be very good for well-being Hmm. I'm interested in I'm interested in in your 
creative flow because of course you produce these incredible illustrations and you to start with I imagine that requires a certain amount of time and probably time alone to create and and you know also you know I went how how long how long do they take do you you, are you you totally alone when you're doing them what is your process and does it involve alone time well, if you look at my Instagram page, you'll probably notice I have done none in the last two months because of how busy I've been. I, I have some that I've done. I did write a column for the Telegraph, so I've got those on it that I did um, for them because I had to have them in for a certain time. But in terms of ones that I've just come up with ideas from, I did the first one about two days ago. I think that was about the first this year because they require exactly that. I think the first thing they require is an idea. Now, the ideas often come to me at the most random points, usually when I'm giving my brain a break, not trying to think of ideas. So in the shower, when I'm out for a walk, when I'm pottering around the house, I have not been doing, I have been showering, obviously, but other things, being out for a walk by myself, or just having time to let my brain kind of mull things over have not been happening recently. So ideas have not been happening because I haven't had time alone. And also, yes, the drawings are done when I'm alone. I find it hard to shift between things if I'm doing it. So um, I would spend an hour to a couple hours probably doing one, depending on the complexity of it. And I'm also often incorporating ideas that people have given me, um, which I ask for via Instagram. So it takes a, a while to do that. And I just haven't had that time. And that's, that for me is very much a process of flow. When I'm sitting doing a drawing, I like to just do the drawing. I really enjoy it. It's actually probably one of my coping strategies, which is why I've done so many during the kind of first part of the pandemic, because that was a way for me to process what I was hearing, process what I was thinking, and just relax. I really enjoy it. It's, it's really relaxing sitting drawing. Well, thank you so much for that honesty, because I think, you know, I think a lot of people will relate to that, not having been able to sort of create and, you know, again, even just take that physical alone time over the past two months, you know, a lot of parents out there having had to homeschool during this time, you know, while balancing work, all of that, you know, you you don't have those moments um, alone. And of course, you know, I can, you say that the first two months, of this year because we you know we're recording at the end of feb have been very difficult for you and it, it's interesting um and and very honest to hear that yeah that that coping strategy has slipped and that that's mm-hmm. been you know that's been difficult for you so i'm i'm sorry to hear that but it's you know it's it's interesting to hear it was also a coping strategy during the first lockdown as well and there was almost a dialogue on twitter i remember where people were saying look this isn't the time to write your first novel this isn't the time to do x but I suppose what was lost during that narrative was that I saw all your work during that time and I thought I am so grateful for everything that you're doing and there's a beautiful sense of connection there that that was also helping you that it was almost like a self-medicating thing (laughs) yeah yeah so I think that's the thing is it's when you start feeling pressure to do these things and that's what I think a lot of people were touching on in the first wave was you shouldn't feel pressure to do things just because people are telling you that's how to cope however if it is helping you cope then and it's not a pressure then it's beneficial and certainly for me it was often once the children had gone to bed I, I would sit down and just draw something out or I'd have an idea and um sometimes used to stay at work a little bit longer probably shouldn't say that in a podcast when um I wasn't actually working I was just doing the drawing so just because I was still going to work um 
throughout the pandemic. So sometimes that would just give me a little time, almost like a kind of a time after I'd worked and a break between coming home. So that's just used little periods of time like that. Um, and I, I shouldn't have just admitted that, but my husband doesn't listen to hot podcasts, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so, so it's trying to find those little bits of time um, to do it. But for me, it was really enjoyable doing it, even though sometimes I'm writing about quite difficult things. I think also the feedback I get about how helpful it is to people is also hugely beneficial um, for me to hear because it makes that time not just worthwhile for me but worthwhile for other people as well. Absolutely and I think at the beginning of your book um, you write about your pillars of mental health and you know the first one of them is connection and I think that you know what you did through those illustrations well they were something that you did uh yes as you say in that sort of sneaky <laughs> sneaky alone time <laughs> tagged on to the end of work that's, exactly <laughs> <what it was. laughs> that's it's you know it's something that came out of your alone time but it created so much connection I mean I, I you know I was doing I've done the whole of lockdown alone but I was doing the first two months during that period where we couldn't see anyone even meet anyone for a walk I was doing it completely alone and I felt so seen in your illustrations I felt Mm -hmm. so much less I think so much less lonely in what was going on and I think that that's a part of why they caused such a big star and, and, and created such a following during this time. That's really interesting actually when you say that because I think actually part of being alone is thinking that you are different sometimes so as psychologists, we talk about normalizing experiences. So if somebody comes in to meet me and they are telling me, I shouldn't be feeling like this. Is it abnormal? Actually, most of the time, when you look at what they've been through and you piece their story together, it makes absolute sense. And saying actually something along the lines of many people who go through that experience, or lots of people I hear feel would feel exactly the same way, or something like, I'm not actually surprised how you that you feel like that having heard your story. I feel quite stressed just hearing it. It takes away that kind of I am different, I am abnormal, I am alone. And actually it normalizes and says we are part of common humanity. We ha- all have similar experiences. We it's very validating to think this is not me being different, reacting this way. It's me being human. And that, seen as human or seen as kind of common humanity, brings you together, really, doesn't it? In those experiences which can be quite isolating and make you feel alone. So I think that normalising and validating experience actually, I hadn't thought of that, but I really like that description, actually reduces feeling alone. It's true. Um, And I think, you know, alone has, alone is one of those words. I honestly think it has so many (laughs) more meanings than we give it credit for. And Mm. that, that is, of course, an objectively you know, difficult feeling of being alone, that feeling that, oh, only I am feeling this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when you see something on social media as well, you know, if you see one of your posts and, you know, it looks amazing and it comes from your account and you've got a really big following and you get, you know, all these these thousands of people liking and commenting, suddenly it feels okay to feel those things. It's an, it's an odd one. We talk about social media and, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, but I think creating that social element around sort of, you know, what might have been seen as a stigmatised emotion. Yeah. yeah, and I think stigma itself makes you feel alone, so it makes you feel different, that nobody else is like this. And if you think nobody else is like this, you're going to feel isolated. But that validation, like you described, that validation, oh, other people do feel this way. And I've got probably the perfect example which came up. So I did a post 
kind of touching on what we spoke about my first drawing this year I think um about holding on to hope and then some people read that and obviously people read things differently but some people read it as oh I should be feeling positive which is not what I was saying I was saying that when you're feeling difficult emotions it's really helpful to try and spot signs of hope but obviously people read it through their own kind of belief system Mm. So a couple of people got in touch with me saying, I'm actually not feeling hopeful um, I'm f- about the lockdown lifting. I'm feeling that um, I'm actually feeling quite anxious. And is this normal? And I just wrote back saying, yes, of course it's normal. Many, many people are feeling that. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Way. And I actually asked this person if I could share their comments on my story. I said, I'll do it anonymously because many people are feeling this way. I think it would be really helpful to let other people know that you, you, know, you don't have to be feeling joyous, which is how the news and you know, social media is often portraying it as lockdown lifts. It's totally you know, normal to feel anxious. So I shared her totally anonymized comment um, on my stories. And the response I get, got was huge. People were saying, thank you for sharing this. You know, I thought it was just me. I thought, you know, it was a bit weird. I was feeling this way. I was trying to hide it. But now I've realized that lots of people feel this way. And yes, lots of people are feeling that way. So however you're feeling in response to the situation, there'll be many, many other people feeling that way. And if you think you should be feeling a particular way, for example, joyful or happy all the time, then it will make you feel isolated and alone. Yeah. Do you think there's... I'm almost, I'm trying to unpick this in my mind. Do you think there's sometimes this almost like angsty teenager within all of us that wants to feel that we are alone in a certain emotion, that something's bigger than, than the world yeah. around us? 
I, th- I think what it is, I think more so it's about kind of societal beliefs about how we should be. And I think, um, I think there's this kind of story throughout society that we reach a peak point of, of adulthood and we will be okay. And we, that is us, we're sorted. And at that point, we will feel happy for the rest of our lives, like a happy ever after. And I think as a teenager, you're trying to find your identity. You're trying to kind of find where you are in life. And then you think you're going to get this peak point. But actually, none of us get that peak point. We might feel we've got to it for a very short time, possibly, probably not. And then we change. But this belief that you're trying to reach this peak point, and that's kind of this nirvana of happiness and how we feel, I think makes us feel we shouldn't be feeling lots of different ways. When actually, like you described that waves of motion, we go up and down all the time. It's yeah. perfectly normal for us. We're never going to reach kind of happy land. It doesn't exist. We might reach it for a short time and visit it, um, but we're never going to exist in happy land for the rest of our lives. So it's about kind of recognizing that there will be those ups and downs, which is quite different to the kind of societal story we have about striving and success. It's all about reaching for something and reaching for this kind of place you will get to where everything will be okay, which isn't possible. We will be okay many times, but we'll also feel bad and we'll feel sad and we'll feel anxious, but then we'll be okay again. Oh, Emma, you know, I'm so soothed just by hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) You've been working as a NHS clinical psychologist throughout this time as well. How, how has the, you know, we talk about living in a loneliness epidemic and that, Mm-hmm. predates the pandemic you know we were talking about loneliness before and we're talking about loneliness now and okay in a you know fairly basic way you might think that during a lockdown we are lonelier because we're allowed the government allows us less social connection than before but do you think that is it as simple as that how how has you know loneliness that narrative played out this year from what you're seeing yes I think there certainly is more isolation and isolation not through well isolation is very rarely through choice but loneliness and people not having the connections that they want and that is impacting on well-being and mental health I mean obviously some people are very good at keeping up connection online um, or in different ways but that kind of group connection which is kind of the fabric of our society, isn't it? The connections we have, the people we link into, those small points of connection, just saying hello to somebody in the street, are all valuable and all provide an identity of who we are as people, but also serve a purpose for us as individuals. It makes us feel good, it validates us, allows us to talk through things, and they're just not so readily available. We have to almost work to create those social connections at the moment. And when you're feeling a bit rubbish anyway, even putting the work into get those social connections can be really hard. So I certainly think the kind of fabric of social connection is not totally lost because there's lots of people keeping up with phone calls, with internet, with you know going out and meeting people as is allowed during lockdown. But the naturalistic kind of social connections in society just haven't been available to us in the same way, which certainly impact on us. But hopefully it'll be shorter term. We are naturally social beings and I'm sure that will bounce back and that fabric, that social connection will, will build up again and benefit us all but it's just naturally been taken away by what's happened Hmm. which impacts on how people are feeling absolutely and I've seen you know I've seen some really interesting stats that actually I don't think was spoken about so much before this year that before the past year 
that you know 16 to 24 year olds are one of the loneliest demographics in some studies the most lonely and I think that do you think that perhaps this year has brought attention to that in a way that there wasn't any before? Yeah, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because you think of that group as a very social group of kind of students going out. But I think even if you think about all the new things that are happening in that age, we're often leaving school. We've got a set group of people, whether you enjoy being with them or not, you might be quite thankful to leave school, but you're certainly moving on and you're trying to form usually new relationships. So whether you're going to university or into a job. So you're, it's in a time of huge transition in your life and transitions require creating new social connections, require putting yourself into unusual and often stressful new situations. So a lot of stress in those age groups. And, you know, going out as a student, you don't naturally fall into the people that you want to be with. That takes a little bit of time. So even though you're in huge groups of people often, I remember starting university, there'd been hundreds of people there. But actually in those hundreds of people, you have to find the two or three people or whatever number that you actually really connect with. And it can actually be quite lonely in huge groups of people doesn't look at, you know, I live close to the university. I look across, not right now, obviously, and see hundreds of students. It looks hugely socially connected. But people can be really lonely in that huge amount of people as well because they haven't found those links. And it's about find, but finding those links in themselves can be quite stressful. So I think it's a period of huge transition and uncertainty and finding your identity and finding the people that you actually want to be with and you actually want to connect with and what you as a person connect with because we don't often know. And we often don't find out until we're a bit older about what actually makes us feel connected and what makes us feel good. Hmm. So I think, yeah, it's a huge period of transition. And do you have, do you think there's any reason for optimism after this year? Because I think that the stigma around these conversations about loneliness, I, you know, I, I can certainly say I've felt more liberated to speak about any loneliness that I've felt as someone living alone during this time I felt liberated to talk about loneliness probably for the first time in my life I don't think I would ever have been having Mm -hmm. honest conversations about loneliness with my friends who all again whether they're living with housemates partners family whatever they're all experiencing loneliness too and do you think that there's almost a room for optimism in that we are finally acknowledging loneliness so perhaps we can speak about it going forward pandemic or otherwise Yes, I think I think there's huge optimism in a few things. I think first of all, you know, loneliness has quite a stigma to it. You know, being alone, should we be, you know, should we feel lonely? We should be feeling, you know, we should be sociable. We should be feeling happy. It's that kind of shoulds again about how we should be feeling. Mm. And the pandemic has almost, like you say, raised this issue up that loneliness is not something to feel stigma about. It's something, you know, a real thing that many people feel. And actually, strangely, that in itself, recognizing that other people feel loneliness starts to make you feel connected. Because if you think I shouldn't be feeling this way, again, that disconnects you, makes you feel isolated. But I think the other thing that is done, which loneliness is closely connected to, it started to raise up the mental health discussion. And I've seen this across so many places. Um, I think, you know, we, we'd already got quite good at talking about mental health, but there, st- there still is a huge stigma and kind of seeing this kind of binary view of there's people with mental health issues and then there's the rest of the population, which is just not true. We all have mental health. And because I think so many more people are experiencing the impact on their well-being and mental health, I think we're raising that up as an issue as well. And I've seen huge changes in terms of how that's been managed. So, for example, thinking about staff well-being, so many people are suddenly interested in their staff well-being. Staff well-being has always been there, but suddenly we're starting to see that isolation in the workplace impacts on people. 
we're losing those kind of non-specific work um work what's the word i think of the word here um I'll start the sentence again so we're losing those non-specific parts of work for example having a coffee or meeting somebody at the water machine which are so important for little connections and there you might have a little discussion about something a problem you've, you've experienced or you might just say did you see a soap opera last night but all these little social connections have gone predominantly and we're starting to see that impact of isolation and loneliness in people in their work settings as well so it's raised these issues up in terms of isolation and mental health in tandem and we're speaking about them and we're taking action on them which I think is really good how do we target this and how do we manage this and I have had seen so much more information and direct action at managing mental health in the workplace with staff in the NHS and thinking about which groups are isolated and how we can manage that as a society because so much mental health work is not done in a treatment room it's done in communities and society and it's so important that's lovely and I think yeah I I I love you know what you say about yeah we you know we we see mental health as just something that you treat or you know you go and you know you go and see someone once you're feeling particularly lonely or particularly isolated but no as you as you say yeah we are sort of acknowledging that community and even yeah even sort of workplace interventions I suppose I I mean I I I was working in an office up until uh the February before last um just before I started writing the alonement book and I I must say you've almost you've made me feel quite normal there because after I left the office and working from home, I kind of kept thinking, oh, I really miss seeing, uh, let's call him Tom. His name wasn't Tom, although there were about seven Toms in my last <laughs> workplace. But, let's, you know, I really miss seeing Tom first thing in the morning. So we used to get in at the same time and have a cup of tea. And it was uh, someone I'd never thought about being a big part of my life, but it was just some part of your routine, I suppose. It's that way that you're your colleagues become your family in a really strange way and that you know that we say family that might be a distant cousin that you only see at Christmas but they do they they factor in and they sort of they play into that wider picture of you know sustaining you so that you don't feel lonely and I suppose yeah it's it's nice that it's nice that we might be honest about that that going back to the workplace or you know personally I'm thinking about joining a co-working space so you know going back to whatever scenario we were in pre-pandemic it's nice to think we might start to appreciate that and look at it a bit more a, a bit more mindfully I suppose for what it does represent and the very real role it does play in our mental health. Absolutely. I think looking at the value of those things we perhaps haven't valued before, like you see the non-specific work parts that catch it up, having a laugh, you know, you know, that in a meeting, something I've lost, which I really enjoy is in a meeting, is catching somebody's eye and you know they're thinking the same thing as you. I, I, really, I, just, I just really like when you do that. You don't have to do anything, you just catch their eye. And it's something really imperceptible almost that you know that person's thinking the same thing. You can't do that in a Zoom meeting. So it's real, these real non-specifics that, of connection that we're missing, that is often known that you're thinking the same thing as somebody else or speaking something through and problem solving around something which have been lost because we are just getting on with our work without that. But those are so important. People now are finding kind of some really practical ways to build those into the workplace, building the connections and reflective spaces and those non-specific ways 
or important parts of work into the workplace and I like that and I think that's going to continue on so I you know like you said communal workspace some people are doing things like which to me sounds like hell but some people like kind of working alongside people but not speaking and then kind of catching up at the end now that's not for me but it is for some people so again it's very individual what works for everybody Mm. but people are thinking about it more I think it's true. Uh, you've reminded me, actually, um, and I do want to plug this because it's just a wonderful facility. I, I do a, while I write independently for most of the day, I do something called Writer's Hour every morning run by London, London Writer's Salon. It's a session where we all sit and write in silence for an hour at 8am. And it would have seemed like the weirdest thing before this year to imagine us all doing that or just sort of staring at each other on our, on our screen by this giant zoom of about 300 people but god it's it's been the game changer it's probably you know talking of toolkits it's Mm -hmm. you know it's probably been one of the key tools throughout this year and yeah it's it's nice I suppose it's nice to appreciate that I almost I like that we've almost taken ourselves back to that stage where we're children and we'll sort of walk up to each other in the playground and say will you be my friend you know (laughs) like we're suddenly we're acknowledging these important things and I imagine it's quite motivating as well. There's a really interesting, and I can't actually remember who spoke about this, but I think it was possibly Aristotle who talked about our second self. And actually, we almost need that second self to keep us motivated to do things. And certainly in the modern research, it shows that if we agree to do something with somebody else, just like you have with that writer circle, mm. um, we're more likely to do it. And we're more likely to commit to it. And we're, then we've got an achievement, which makes us feel good. So the classic example is if I agree to go out for a walk with somebody else, if it's just in my own timetable, I might not do it because who am I going to, you know, it's just myself. I'm not going to lose out much. But if I'm meeting a friend for a walk, I don't want to let her down. So I do it. And then, of course, I really enjoy the walk. I have a chat with her. So that second self helps you gain lots for yourself and be motivated and you're more likely to do something, achieve something. So I love that idea. I want to move on to the idea of alonement, which I like to finish up every episode speaking about. You know, alonement is much like the mental health toolkit that you speak about. It's it's different for everyone. Could you describe a little of how your alonement works? Well, at the moment, not very well at all, because I don't get very much. And that in itself, I, I would say I'm the master of alonement. I love spending time alone. And when I don't, I find it's quite detrimental to me. So, I mean, alone time for me can mean anything from just having brain space and no distractions and not having to multitask on other people and just focus on what I'm doing. And that can be anything from just pottering around the house I haven't done for a long time unfortunately or going out in the garden or writing or drawing a picture but really for me it's about not having to multitask and think of other people's needs it's just focusing on what I'm doing so it's a real luxury and I I don't think I'd ever be bored being alone because there's so many things I like to do and so many ideas I have so I find it I just love being alone I've been alone on many occasions in various places I've gone on holiday alone and used to work um in Orkney by myself and I used to love spending that time by myself it's just yeah I love it yes I love that you say that you'd never be bored being alone because you have so many things do you think that that's something that comes out of being a mum as well do you think that you almost gain that appreciation for alone time that maybe you wouldn't have had before yes I think that's definitely the case it becomes more precious so 
you know, being able to meander. I mean, I probably meandered all the time before kids. Now meandering and just want, even meandering around a shop. I mean, even a supermarket with kids, you don't meander. You go and get what you need and you get out. So even being able to stop and think, right, which packet of a pastry I mean I haven't bought pastry in years so it's a rubbish example but which packet of pastry am I going to get hmm, which one looks best for me I'll get that one and having the time to think rather than I need to get this now is just I think you start to appreciate the luxury of just having that meandering time I've always enjoyed meandering but I think I probably place hugely more value on it now when I have time alone when I have walks or when I have any time pockets of time alone I think the value has increased exponentially since having kids that's interesting yeah someone someone else I spoke to they they described alone time as a source of fluctuating commodities (laughs) again the idea of luxury comes into it yeah yeah it is luxury for me right now so I don't know how I would have been prior to having kids 10 years ago I certainly did always like spending time alone but it probably was more available to me. So I probably didn't enjoy it as much. I think the reduction in availability in alone time has upped its value because I need it, but I don't get it so much. So its value is, I mean, it's precious to me, hugely precious. And actually a really interesting piece of research from the first pandemic, which I think was conducted in Finland, which looked at how parents coped. And there's a few kind of key findings that came out. One was kind of lowering their standards, you know, let kids watch TV a bit more or, or just not having to meet the same family kind of standards they normally had. The second one was scheduling in time for each parent to be alone. And I thought that was really interesting. And certainly for me, that works. Just having time to yourself to do something you choose to do rather than to have to meet the needs of everybody else. Yes. And does that does that work at play that that scheduling that alone time? <laughs> uh, sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say it, it worked a lot better when it was light in the evenings. We were I mean, we were starting getting lighter here, but you know, in, in January and February here we're dark until you know where well, it's dark about half three four o'clock. So the time pockets of time I used to spend alone would be going out for walks in the evening by myself, but it's just not so possible because of the weather. So I think it's what I started doing was having a bath just about every evening just to get time alone because nobody's going to disturb <laughs> you in the bath um, but I think scheduling in does help um, and certainly having it for me helps a lot but yeah the scheduling with a family you have to have a flexible schedule and that's actually something else that helped but sometimes the thing that goes in that flexible schedule is the thing that meets your own needs it often goes first sadly so is that alone time yeah because alone months one of the biggest, I mean, probably one of the most outward facing um, manifestations of, of your own alonement is your beautiful illustrations, which, you know, you, as you say, you need that alone time for them. And that sort of had to fall to the wayside the past couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even the alone time to enable those ideas to come. So enable the kind of brain connections to put together to process a piece of information I maybe got during the day from somebody, something somebody had said on Instagram and thinking, oh, that would make a big, a good illustration. I didn't even have the time to do that. So, I, you know, that alone time for me is also about the generation of ideas. I'm not necessarily sitting thinking I'm going to come up with ideas because I don't come up with ideas when I think that, but they happen when I'm doing something else. And they always tend to happen when I'm doing something else. They pop into my head. And the decentness popped in my head at work, but then I don't remember them because I'm so busy doing other stuff. But when I'm you know, alone or having that kind of alone time, that's when I will have an idea, then have time to think about the idea and think about what I, how I could kind of draw that idea. So the image then comes to mind as well beyond the idea. 
but that's having brain space and I haven't had much recently. Alonement is something that, you know, I am biased, but, you know, I know that, I know that again, you know, I'm like you, I think that, um, and, you know, I'll hold my hands up again that the past couple of months, I've probably been neglecting my alonement in that, for instance, I haven't been journaling as much. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's my, my thing that I know sustains me. But something I do struggle with, and I think perhaps maybe a lot of listeners will be struggling with, when, when do you know that you should, or how, how do you know, rather, how do you know when you should be prioritizing alone time and how do you know when you should be prioritizing social time and you know how do you make that call of what you need for your mental health in that moment well I think nobody gets this right all the time (laughs) I think we all kind of have to go with what feels right for us at the time and I think it's really difficult because us our brains also often predict the wrong thing so it predicts what will make us happy or what it predicts will make us happy is not necessarily what will always make us happy. So I think it's really difficult, but I think it's just thinking, noticing how you're feeling as much as possible, because that's the first thing you need to actually be aware of how you're feeling Mm. and thinking, what would help me right now? What do I feel like I need right now according to how I'm feeling? You won't get it right all the time. Sometimes you'll maybe speak to somebody on the phone, you come off feeling worse. And that wasn't the right thing to do. And sometimes you'll spend some time alone, then you'll start, you know, thinking, oh, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. So actually the time alone becomes unhelpful. But I think it's also noticing that, starting to notice patterns and you start to build up and understand when something will be helpful. But I can't, don't think anybody can make that decision all the time about what's right for them all the time. But it's trying to notice how you're feeling and thinking, what do I need now? What do I want to know? What would be helpful for me now when you have the time to do that, of course? Yeah. So. But yeah, I think I think we're all we're all learning throughout life about what works for us when, and we all get it wrong at times. That awareness, because again, be aware—that's the second of your pillars of mental health. That requires a certain amount of aloneness, even if it's not physical alone time. How how do you do that? What would be your sort of top tip for you know gaining that awareness in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think time to reflect building in some time to reflect so um for example at the end of the day at work even building in five minutes or after you've been writing for a bit thinking right okay so what worked well there or how was I feeling um just reflecting on what's done you know often we're on to the next thing but I think building in reflection time is really important and also in that reflection time say well how am I feeling now you know, what's actually going on, what's going on in my body, how am I feeling, what am I thinking? So just stopping and pausing, even for a couple of minutes and thinking about how you're feeling, because we're so often just going on to the next thing. And that pausing can be thinking about how you're feeling the here and now, but also just reflecting on what you've done and reflecting on how you felt when you did things. So you're kind of building up an awareness of, okay, after I you know, wrote that piece of work and then phoned somebody, but actually that was really unhelpful. So thinking back kind of, on what you've done or thinking after I, I did I wrote that piece of work and then sat in a cup of tea and thought about it and that was really helpful so it's reflecting on what's been helpful for you but also reflecting on how you feel now and I think building in bits of reflection time and I talk about in the book having a to-do list which is really a chance to reflect on your day and also reflecting what went well what did I do that worked well and that might be thinking well I actually then spent five minutes alone after you know, doing a really busy piece of work in that meeting and that worked really well for me. So you have to notice, be aware of A, how you're feeling, B, what worked for you, 
and see what didn't work for you. And it's only by knowing that you can kind of build up in the future and learn from that and kind of think about what does work for you because there's not one thing that works for anybody all the time. And it's about learning what works for you. And that's kind of a lifetime process and knowing that you'll get things wrong at times and that's okay. Oh, well, Emma, that is so, again, it's so soothing to hear. The resounding thing I hear from everything you say is, it is okay, it is normal. And, you know, as I said earlier, I feel so seen. And I know so many of us feel so seen from everything you do. So thank you for all your work. And I'm so excited to see what you produce in the future. And, you know, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And now for an exclusive clip from Alone Month, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It, the audiobook. And uh, yes, that is me reading it. You need to work on your solitude skills, said no one, ever. We hear a lot about social skills, however, the tools we need to interact harmoniously with other people. Social skills involve communicating effectively with others, working well together actively listening. Developing these skills is a key focus in so many areas of life, from early years education to workplace bonding. Social skills are shoved down our throats, whether or not we're particularly sociable people. The square peg, round hole metaphor certainly holds true here. Think of that episode of Gilmore Girls, where Rory Gilmore perhaps one of television's finest depictions of an introvert, is told by her headteacher that she has to stop reading books at lunchtime and instead socialise with her classmates in order to get a better recommendation letter for college. Yet, as any fan of the show will know, Rory's ability to retreat into a world of books, a typically introvert characteristic, is simply fundamental to her personality not to mention an improving academic habit that eventually leads her to be class valedictorian. In the same way that social skills can be a struggle, a great number of us lack the ability to spend time alone in a meaningful, productive or enjoyable way. That's where solitude skills come in. Solitude skills, so termed by Dr Virginia Thomas, author of the paper How to Be Alone, an Investigation of Solitude Skills, are the equivalent of social skills, but for time alone. They are what's needed to transform alone time into a positive solitude experience rather than an isolating, terrifying one. A cause close to my heart. Dr Thomas's work chimes with me because solitude skills are essentially your alonement toolkit. The ability to relish your alone time brings meaning and value to your life. And that's something that's rarely emphasised as a personal strength, in the same way that having great social skills is. Alexandra Shulman, former editor of British Vogue, values this lesser celebrated skill set really highly. On my Alonement podcast, she said, I think one of the great talents in life is to be happy on your own. People who are content on their own, who can also relate to other people, that is a great talent because... At the end of the day, we are on our own, really, and it's important to be able to be on our own. I think it's also something that we don't value enough. 
it's a skill that's worth trying to perfect. Alone time, at its best, should be a self-actualizing experience. It's a chance to do the activities you love, like exercise or pursuing a creative hobby. It's to get to know yourself, to recognize your ambitions, and to look after yourself. In theory, great. The trouble is, if we lack solitude skills, often solo time can descend into the opposite. Expectation. A bubble bath, a chilled glass of Sauvignon Blanc, a copy of Middlemarch, and Radio 4 playing in the background, before changing into silk pyjamas and dancing around to Super Freak like Cameron Diaz at the start of Charlie's Angels. Reality. Falling down an Instagram rabbit hole, binging on Ben and Jerry's, plus whatever chocolate you find in the back of the cupboard, and texting your ex. If your time spent alone looks more like the latter, then you will start to associate solitude with negative behaviour patterns that leave you feeling absolutely lousy. And I don't blame you. As you've probably already discovered, carving time out to be by yourself doesn't mean that, instantaneously, just like that, you're going to make the best of it. As Alan de Botton said on the podcast, it isn't enough to say you can know yourself from being alone because there are ways of being alone that are actually not being with yourself. While some people's preferred escapism is a menage a trois with Ben and Jerry, Alan gave the example of someone obsessively scrolling through the news to avoid introspection. Whatever it is, we all have our unhealthy habits which can creep in while we're supposed to be having quality me time. Maybe that's not surprising, given how many of us are so thoroughly unused to spending significant periods of time alone. What's more, we focus a lot as we grow older on learning how to develop social skills for being in the company of others, but rarely take the same proactive, critical approach towards honing our ability to thrive when we're alone. So... Is it any wonder that our solitude skills are a little rusty? So how was that for you? I really hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode and the exclusive clip from the Alonement audiobook. You can order your copy now in hardback, Kindle and audiobook from Amazon, Waterstones, WH Smith and all good booksellers. I'll see you all soon for the next season of the podcast. And of course, you can follow Alonement on Instagram at alonementofficial or sign up to the free monthly newsletter at alonement.com. In the meantime, stay well, stay happy, and remember to keep valuing your relationship with yourself. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.